uh, the second uh, session of Calvin's Institutes. We're covering book one, chapter one. Uh, thankful to have everybody on Zoom with us today. Um, it's a bit of a smaller group here in person. I think a lot of people are, are sick or uh, don't want to travel with the weather, but uh, I hope we'll still have some good time of discussion because the idea is to, moving forward to have it be less um, presentation and more uh, open discussion. Well, as we begin uh, this session, as we open up chapter one, I'd like to start with the scripture that we may look to the mind of God before we look to Calvin and turn in Acts 17, verse 22, and I have it up on the, the screen if you need it, but uh, I'll be reading verses 22 to 31. And uh, let's give our attention now to the reading of God's word, Acts 17, verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God, that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needeth anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed. <laughs> and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word tonight. Well, as we look to book one, chapter one, uh, we consider the knowledge of God and the knowledge of uh, ourselves. And here in this uh, portion of God's word, we find the Apostle Paul doing something very similar to what uh, um, Calvin does in the opening of the Institutes. And he declares two things that we recognize in chapter one, which is the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And he says he's declaring the truth knowledge of God to those who will hear. Uh, you see that here in verse, underlined in verse 23. Him declare I unto you. And he first gives the knowledge of the true God, that he is the creator God, which is where Calvin begins, isn't it? That he does not dwell in temples made by hands because he himself is unmade, right? That's the argument against idolatry that later on Calvin will present too in the book in the institutes is that God cannot be represented by the creation because he is the creator and he is above the creation and he's not made uh, by the hands of anything. And so he cannot be represented that way. 
And so here he reveals the creator-creature distinction. God does not need anything. Instead, he is the source of all things. He gives life, breath, and all things, as you see in verse 25. And he has made all nations of men. He has made all of us, in other words. There's not a single man, woman, or child that is not made by God. And so then... What are you doing? There's somebody. There you go. All right. Um, And so we see in here that our lives come from him. And he is declaring, Paul is, the knowledge that we ought to have of ourselves, which is that we ought to know that we are created beings. And in verse 28, uh, in him, that is God, this is part of Calvin's um, argument, as you might know it in the first chapter. For in him, meaning God, we live and move and have our being. That our lives come from God and our lives are sustained by God. We are totally at the dependence of God. We are not independent of God in any way. And this God, the true God, and this will lead to the gospel, of course, has a message for all men. He commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That means to turn to him and to turn away from their sin, to turn to the one he has appointed, that he will judge the world in righteousness. This is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, right? And that's where we will go eventually in the Institutes but uh, we will get there in due time. So anyway, what we have here is Paul doing what Calvin does at the opening of the Institutes. He declares that we need knowledge of the true God, and he also declares that we need knowledge of who we are in relation to that God. With that, then, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful that you have declared yourself to us in the word of God. And we come now, Father, once again, not to extol uh, a man Um, John Calvin or his work, but instead that it may be, he may be a guide to us, to the true God through the Holy Scriptures. And so we pray, Father, in our time of discussion that you would enable us to seek after God through the Scriptures, that we may better know you, O Lord, and who we are in relation to you, that we are creatures and you are the creator. And not only are we creatures, we are sinful creatures in need of a Savior. So would you do this now for the glory of God and for the sake of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, as we kind of open here with uh, session uh, two, we will be looking at the um, sum of true wisdom in chapter one, section one. That's uh, how, um, if you're using the beverage edition, is very helpful in, in titling all the sections for us. And just for a bit of context, as we pick up the Institutes again, uh, you remember book one is of the knowledge of God, the creator, that is the father and 18 chapters. So this is the first chapter. If we do a chapter per session, that's nine months or so at this pace to get through book one. Book two will be knowledge of God, the redeemer, the son, and book three, the knowledge of God, the sanctifier, the spirit, and book four will be of the Holy Catholic Church, how it is the means that the Lord uses to get um, the knowledge of God to us and saving knowledge as well. And if you have the beverage edition, you might notice that there's a helpful introduction to every chapter or to every book, as well as the argument and outline of the book, which it makes it very easy for you to see where you are in context of everything. So tonight, I just wanted to lay out what uh, my hope was, and we'll see again, God willing, how far we get. And I think we'll get far. It's not a very long chapter. Uh, We want to discuss chapter one, and we'll do it by splitting it up into its three sections. 
And really tonight is a kind of the first night where we're actually going through the material itself. So it'll kind of set the pace, I think, for future sessions, how we might move forward. All right. Well, first, as far as discussion, this is open to those on Zoom as well uh, as in person. Um, compared to other systematic theologies you may have read, what, what is it that has struck you about the institutes that might be a little different? I think a lot of them tend to start with the scriptures. Okay. Um, mm. you know, speaking of just <clears throat> giving that as the foundation, the word of God. Okay. Under the assumption that that's got to be our presupposition. Right. Knowledge. Yeah. So how our confession begins, right? Um, a, uh, and that's kind of, I think ever since the Westminster confession, especially systematics have been ordered in that direction. But uh, a lot of times, I think in Calvin's era, you start with the doctrine of God. And then how God reveals himself, I think, is kind of the way that. Um, so, yeah, these days, though, you're right. It's almost always start with the doctrine of the word uh, like our confession does. So, yeah, that's that's a great point of distinction. Anything else about um, things you've noticed about maybe the language or things that maybe even of his time? That's a little different. I think Andrew mentioned something very good. What about the language he uses? The, you know, you might think someone like Calvin, right, might use very kind of dry language. What kind of, how does he speak? How does he write? It's very, it's very vivid, right? It's illustrative. Yeah. I can't, I'll probably remember forever him talking about the Roman Catholics reading the church fathers and saying that that supports him. And he was like, and so it seems they look for drops amongst gold. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah. He, he sort of draws you into the doctrine, doesn't he? Through the language he uses. He doesn't just sort of say A, B, C, proposition one, two, and three. He's all, he does that, but he also has uh, a wonderful mastery of language. Um, blunt. Blunt. Yeah. It's very okay. blunt. I don't remember if it was the first chapter, but you know, he'll often say, if you don't, if you reject this, then you're dumb. Yeah, so, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very matter of fact, isn't it? That's, very, that's good. Um, pastorally, how might he also, you know, we talked in the first session, it was meant to be a compendium of the Christian religion for ordinary people. Um, you know, a lot of people seem intimidated by the institutes, but did you notice that it's actually a very pastoral work? Um, in a lot of ways, isn't it? You know, he's, especially when you think of the medieval scholastics, right, who, who begin with, or even the defense of the science of theology, right? Here you have Calvin is, is very much, what's his first concern? Like, how does it, what's the first concern of the book? Pastorally. How we view ourselves? How we view ourselves, right? That's right. He wants everybody to know uh, who they are essentially, in relation to God. And so it's not theology for the sake of theology. You can see that. He immediately gets to the heart of the matter. Who are you and who is God, right? And it's, uh, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't start with things about the divine energies or anything like that. It's very, very practical in a lot of ways. Um, very good. Any other uh, observations about just style or uh, method? Very approachable. It's not like reading a textbook or a publication that's all lofty. It's 
it's very approachable to the average person, especially maybe not to us as we the English language has kind of devolved. But back then I could imagine this was very explain it like I'm five. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Very approachable. Very good. Uh, I remember I read in one of his biographies that he, when he would preach, he, you know, often didn't have notes. Mm. And, you know, men tend to look at that and think, oh, he, he's so, he's so bright, bright, he's so wise, he's so gifted. He doesn't even need notes. But he intentionally did that because his thought was, if I write things out in a script, mm. It will tend to. Um, I will write them more uh, eloquently. Yeah. I will write them more, you know, uh, in the opposite manner of what you're saying, like very mm. learned speech. Mm. Whereas if I just speak them in the moment, it will it will be to the to the, to the congregation, yeah, to them. Yeah, you'll ha he'll have to be seeing them and have them in mind. Right. That's good. That's good. Of course, he was a genius to be able to do both of those at the same time. I can't do. That. Um, Okay, yeah, so, you know, it's not esoteric stuff. It's the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And so this is, um, oh, well, hold on. Let me first back up. I had a second question. It was covered by the Zoom window. Were there things that were very impactful from chapter one that, uh, that you found um, important or interesting or even just clarification or emphasis that, you know, you may not have seen in the past? That there's no excuse that we don't or can't know God um, through natural revelation and through God's providences. Okay. Yeah. Man is without excuse. Did he have something? Well, his analogy in, I think, the middle of section two um, of the sun. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I have that. You know, so that just obviously stuck out, kind of like Felisa was mentioning. Mm. Um, where he said, if you look at the the earth, like if you look at the earth, yeah, day, you think, oh, this is very clear and bright surrounding. But when you look at the sun, mm -hmm. you recognize how dull and dim that was compared to the yeah. sun. That's looking at ourselves compared to other things, that's right. people around us or our own inward versus comparing to God's family. And I, uh, what I, I love about his illustration there, and I have a slide for that, um, but since you brought it up, it's a it's phenomenal because a lot of times we even think about that, right? Like uh, the the difference in brilliance maybe between the sun and the earth. But he even says that like our eyes aren't even suited mm -hmm. to look at the sun, right? Like when we realize that we're only suited to look at the earth, like that's as far as our faculties will take us. Yeah, we realize we can't even see right what the sun is. And I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, that that really stuck out to me as well. So, all right, very good. All right, so this is how he begins, uh, obviously. Um, this is the very first phrase in chapter one. This is the fundamental doctrine, that our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Okay, so that's essentially what's going to be expounded here. Now, uh, Calvin then assumes we should be interested in wisdom. Right. In fact, that's his sort of presupposition there, that all of us should be interested in matters of wisdom. And so you could ask the question, right, are, are men concerned with wisdom today? And if so, what kind of wisdom? Foolish wisdom. Okay. How can I get 
what's best for me on this earth right now. Okay. What makes that foolish? Because it's temporary and it's all going to turn to dust. I mean, I see, <clears throat> I see these, you know, dumb phenomenons like people like Andrew Tate and their followers who are just all about, I could give you the secrets to getting in Bugatti's and, you know, fame mm. and money and power and blah, blah, blah. And that's what a foolish man desires, not a wise man. But in their own perception, they see it as wisdom. Yeah, very good. Um, is there a book in the Bible you're familiar with that sort of speaks to the folly of that? Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's supposedly a drawing of Solomon, anyhow. Um, <laughs> with this crown. Uh, yeah, so men are concerned with folly, in, in other words, at least biblically speaking. They might count it wisdom, is what I'm hearing, but it's really foolishness. Um, life under the sun, essentially, uh, concerned with matters concerning self and this world, um, and so on. Um, but Calvin uh, uh, assumes there is such a thing as true and solid wisdom, right? That's, those are the words that he uses. And I thought those were important. Deemed true and solid wisdom. Um, not ephemeral, not something that's folly in the guise of wisdom, but true wisdom. And uh, those are the things that are important. Uh, where does wisdom begin according to the Bible? The fear of the Lord. Right. And so the more that we are wise to know the Lord, right, this is where he begins. Right. Isn't it? If you, we know the Lord, if we have a knowledge of God, we ought to fear him. And that's where our wisdom begins. And so our wisdom is found in understanding who God is, fearing him, and then understanding who we are in relation to this holy, majestic, awesome God, seeing that we are sinners and then fleeing. Our wisdom would be to flee in to the, the wisdom of God, who is Christ himself. And so this is an important uh, part of how the entirety of the book begins, the Institutes. So the problem, though, is this, right? Which comes first, knowledge of God or of ourselves? What does Calvin say to that? Knowledge of God? Yeah, he gets there. He gets there at the very end. He, he basically, of the chapter, he, he comes to that conclusion. Um, but uh, is it so clean cut as that when he begins chapter one? You can almost see him getting to that conclusion, but how does he begin even at the very beginning of the chapter? It, it kind of starts, I mean, it kind of sounds like he starts there when he says, for in the first place, no man can survey himself without forthwith turning his thoughts towards God. But then you're right, it kind of moves on to a man's own perception of God with, with self-knowledge. Yeah, yeah. I, he, uh, he basically says they're interrelated, right? That they're connected together by many ties. And he says there's a difficulty even in determining which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. And so, yeah, like you were saying there, he, he kind of wrestles through the question 
through the first chapter and then lands on, like you said in the beginning, um, he gets to God, right? God is where we have to begin. But these are interrelated. Uh, and this is the struggle, right? Uh, we cannot separate that knowledge so clearly because what did we read in Acts 17? It was in him we move and live and have our being, right? And so there is a kind of interconnection there between us. Like, do we begin with the knowledge of, of myself uh, as a sinner, as a creature? Well, if I'm a creature, then there must be a creator, right? You can go in that direction. Um, and uh, But a lot of times we start with ourselves. All right. Um, and this is what uh, Danny was, uh, was saying. Uh, For in the first place is a quote from the Institutes. No man can survey himself without forthwith turning his thoughts towards the God in whom he lives and moves. And this is, uh, we'll ask a, a question on this, because it is perfectly obvious that the endowments which we possess cannot possibly be from ourselves, nay, that our very being is nothing else than subsistence in God alone. And so I guess the first question is, do, uh, do we realize that we are not self-made, right? Is this a question that many people ponder? Is it a question? Yeah, do people, do you know people who ponder the question? Like, am I self-made? Is there a creator? Was I created? Am I dependent on someone? I think people don't put it towards themselves, but they put it towards, you know, the universe. Okay. Chicken egg argument. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. They they actually vacate themselves almost from the question, right? Mm -hmm. Like, where did all this stuff come from? But it's almost... Oh, I came from my mother. Right. Yeah, it's almost convenient you leave yourself out of the equation. Um, Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. He says, uh, it is perfectly obvious that the endowments which we possess cannot possibly be from ourselves. Now, maybe people were a bit more reflexive or uh, thought a bit deeper back then. and I think it is perfectly obvious if you think about it, right? But I think in my experience, at least these days, not many are thinking about the question. You know, I think that it is perfectly obvious. Mm. And now we've had some men that we, uh, the world esteems in high regard. They've done the work for us. So we'll accept their answer, which is okay. evolution, ah, yes. Big Bang, which is right. science, science, science. Yeah. So men men tend to not think through this because then they're accountable to the creator. So they'll just be willing to accept the the lies of the devil. Mm. Yeah. So in the time since then, especially, even in that time, there was that that idea, but especially since Darwin, let's just say, it's become um sort of a, a matter of indoctrination from the time you're very young that you were evolved from something. Um, and that mankind has just kind of come onto the scene accidentally, to use that word, right? Well, you know, if you stand out and uh, stood up in a college lecture mm. and said, you know, God created all of us, mm. you would likely be mocked. It yeah. would probably certainly be mocked by the professor, if not the students. Yeah, yeah. You just bags to mostly water. Yeah, I've heard that too, yeah. That's right. Bags of mostly water. Um, Now, why is it that it ought to be obvious, even with all that indoctrination, 
that our faculties couldn't have come from the way that the world says they have. What are some of the things that may testify otherwise, if a man thought about that? There's so many realities that are completely, that obviously govern the world of science, and so they couldn't come from science itself. Okay. Like, the laws of logic. Mm. How could you say, like, that evolved out of goo? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Mm. It's the kind of thing, like, I think it's logically very natural to question these things and come to these conclusions, but it's sinfully very unnatural. So like you get little kids that will ask these questions because nobody's like told them not to ask them yet. But then like you spend the rest of your life, the whole world, like shut up, that's it. don't ask those questions. Like nobody asks those questions. Go eat your snack and like <laughs> and then you just don't ask them anymore. Right. And it's easier not to. Yeah. It's sort of like what was that that parable? The emperor has no clothes, right? It takes a little child to point it out. Um that's that's essentially where we're at, I think, as a society. Um, laws of nature. Laws of nature. Um, which I would include creation in that, mm. but then also laws of, I mean, I don't know if everybody maybe categorizes it differently, but laws of nature as far as like, um, maybe this is what you were saying, but like physics, like uh, mm. gravity, right? Like where that had to come from. There's an order to mm. all these things. Okay, the universe so, has order. The universe has order. Um, that had to have a, a beginning to it somewhere. Uh, and the same with um, like morals mm -hmm. and things like that. So why is it wrong to yeah. whatever it is you believe? That's right. If you tell me there's no, you know, there's, there's no absolute truth. Oh, is that true? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Is that an absolute truth? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that sort of comes to another, you mentioned morals, you know, like why is it men have a conscience, right? that testifies that things they do are wrong. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, we're going to, that's just the kind of the, those, those faculties, uh, everything that we see about the laws of the, the universe and even the, the creation, like where did creation come from? Right. Um, our very being is nothing else than subsistence or dependence in God alone, that all of us, you know, have our, our being from God and is maintained by God as well. You know, what are some of the faculties that we take for granted um, that we exercise every day that we don't even think about most of the time? What's that? Breathing, breathing right? Yeah, breathing is one of them, right? Like these are the things like a man or woman starts to realize that they are at the mercy of God when they're on the respirator. Right. It's like, I, I am not actually self-sufficient. I am dependent on something else. Person gets older. They'd see that too. Yeah. Okay. You have a taste of food and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, all of that, uh, you know, and, and what happens when, you, you know, your body is ill, right. And you can't do those things. You start to notice that I'm dependent on something else, on someone else. Very good. And second place, uh, those blessings which unceasingly distill to us from heaven are like streams. Here's that illustrative language, like are like streams co conducting us to the fountain. Here again, the infinitude of good which resides in God becomes more apparent from our poverty. Now, what kind of poverty is it that 
that Calvin is speaking of. He's saying here that we ought to know that we are in poverty. What sort of blessings come on to every man? Maybe I can ask it that way. And what blessings, when they cease, every man starts to uh, get anxious about? Basic provision. Basic provision, right? He sends his rain on the just and the unjust alike. And what happens when he stops? You suddenly realize, I need, I need God to, <laughs> to, to provide these things, right? Even a modern man, as modern as we are in all of our technology, once the rain stops, everybody starts to freak out, you know, because what are we going to do for water? Basic things like that. You see, Texas can't even survive a, a snowstorm. And, uh, you know, we're, we shut down. So, you know, we, we, it's like the Lord grabs our attention in those things, doesn't he? And he sort of say, wake up, you know, you're dependent on me. A tornado comes or a hurricane. And suddenly we, we realize that we are not the center of the universe. Like we think we're not. And, and God said that himself. Is there a calamity in the land? Yeah. That and have I not sent it? Yeah. Done it. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. So these things ought to be obvious to us. In other words, is what Calvin is saying. In particular, the miserable ruin into which the revolt of the first man has plunged us, so that's the fall, compels us to turn our eyes upwards. Not only that, while hungry and famishing, we might then thence ask what we want, but being aroused by fear may learn humility. For as there exists in man something like a world of misery, and ever since we were stripped of the divine attire, our naked shame discloses an immense sense of disgraceful properties Every man being stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness in this way necess necessarily obtains at least some knowledge of God. Now, what is this knowledge of God that uh, he is speaking of here? Compare it to what he says of ourselves. What does he call us? Like everyone understand that there's something greater than himself because he's realizing that he's so wicked. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I think wicked was where actually I think he's going with this because he, he uses what? The miserable ruin uh, of the first man, the right? The rebellion of Adam has plunged us into a certain kind of misery, right? So it's not just, and he's getting at, it's not just the gulf between us and the creator, just in terms of the creature um, created uh, creator distinction. Uh, instead, he's saying it's also our ruin into sin, right? It compels us to look upward. What are some of the sorrows that come upon um, us as a people due to sin that causes us to sometimes just cry out to the Lord, whether we are um, Christians or not? You know, there's certain miseries that come out of sin, don't, aren't there? What kind of miseries? Yeah, and, and death. death is the obvious. Yeah, death, right? And it sort of goes back to Acts 17, right? People will reach out to the unknown God in times of distress. What's the, the expression? There are no atheists in foxholes, right? Um, you know, everybody knows that there is a creator because of our misery too. There's, there's something, right, to this misery that testifies that there is something wrong with our race, um, and so he says it exists in man, something like a, a world of misery ever since this is again, speaking of being kicked out of Eden, right? Our naked shame. So when he says naked shame, and, and 
this is having to do, of course, with moral things. What testifies to our shame without even the word of God? Are men, do, do even non-Christians sometimes feel a sense of shame over their actions? If they don't, it's a judgment of God, actually. Yeah, not that's to right. have that conscience seared. Steered, yeah. Um, well, yes, they do. They do. Yeah, I mean, they don't, you know, and most men, the shame is, like, most men don't commit wickedness openly. Mm. They do it in secret. It, yeah, so, that's right. So, you know, that's a big, big thing. Um, mm. Most men wouldn't admit things like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a whatever it is, a, you know, heinous thing you want to label people like. And we see that as wickedness abounds more and more. And now some of those things that used to be 50 yeah. years ago, like yeah. you would you would be hard pressed to find men to be open homosexuals. Mm. That was um, shameful. Mm-hmm. And now it's it's more much more uh, celebrated. Yeah. And, and so, what is it that that source that conscious conscious conscience? Let me say that right. Conscience sort of. Um, making you ashamed testify to so what's calvin getting at that there is from that shame right that stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness in this way necessarily obtains at least some knowledge of god how do you obtain some knowledge of god from your shame because god's law is made paramount through your through your shame and therefore still written on your hearts mm. no matter how faded away yeah yeah so uh, there's a somebody has a, a law that's greater than myself that uh says that the things that i do are wrong that goes to so, several of things even you were talking about natural laws all men kind of know that there is a, a moral law you had mentioned that morals as well there's a moral law that governs their their um behavior. And so it's not only the laws of physics and logic, but even the laws of morality have come from a creator who has brought that order into the world, um, regardless of what anarchists and and such might want to say. Now, it's very interesting. So this is John 4, verse 10. Um, And I used Calvin's commentaries because he has some very interesting remarks here or pertinent remarks to this study in the institutes. So this is Jesus to the Samaritan woman. And Jesus answered and said unto her, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. Now, what is it that Jesus revealed to the Samaritan woman? Kind of a poverty, isn't it? Right. Essentially, morally, you know, you've had several husbands, right? Even the man you're living with isn't your husband. She she perceived him to be a prophet. Mm. And he is, you know, not just a prophet, but mm. yeah, you know, this is God incarnate. Yeah. And and what is he offering her? He's offering her a remedy, right, for her poverty there. Like if uh if you had asked, I would fill you, right? And so Calvin, uh, he comments here and he says, by these words, we are taught that then only do we know what Christ is, what is when we understand what the father hath given to us in him and what benefits he brings to us. Now that knowledge begins with the conviction of our poverty. For before anyone desires a remedy, he must be previously affected with the view of his distresses. Thus, the Lord invites not those who have drunk enough, but the thirsty 
not those who are satiated, but the hungry to eat and drink. And why would Christ be sent with the fullness of the spirit if we were not empty? And so the idea is, oh, this happened last time too. I don't know why. Let me connect the display again. Sorry, on Zoom, screen sharing stopped. You can get the Beatitudes. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, hopefully I got screen sharing back. Um, yeah, so tell me a little bit about the Beatitudes and how the Lord uh, opens the Sermon on the Mount that way. Mm-hmm. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit and those who mourn, right? Those who are broken, and then those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness, yep. But you know, your point is, and I think this is where you're going at, is even when the Savior comes into the world, right? He's saying that you are in deep poverty, you need me. And so, you know, the, the point of Calvin's institutes, like the gospel itself, is to point us to our need for Christ that we are utterly bankrupt. There is a creator, but it's not that we sort of close the end of book one and say, well, there's a God who's the creator God. We're kind of um, a mess and uh, we're empty and utterly wretched. Uh, I guess that's that, you know, it's building an argument to get to book two, which will show us our need for the redeemer. And then it's going to move us to book three says that the spirit comes to give us those benefits. And then book four, how we get those benefits, how we are filled in our poverty. So this is where the argument comes. And so um, this is, again, we continue on in book uh, in chapter one. We are accordingly urged by our own evil things to consider the good things of God. And indeed, we cannot aspire to him in earnest until we have begun to be displeased with ourselves. I think that is a, a wonderful, wonderful point and how contrary that is to the spirit of the age, right? Tell a man he ought to be, or a woman, that they ought to be displeased with themselves. And what are you going to hear? That's not very positive thinking. That's not positive thinking, right? That's right. Uh, in fact, um, you hear this more and more. That's a very harmful doctrine to tell people that, you know, they... That's spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse. <laughs> hmm. Right. Joel Osteen's not going to be happy. <laughs> no, no, he isn't, is he? It's one thing to know that your own deeds are evil, and then there's a whole other thing to be displeased with them. Mm. That's actually a very good distinction. Yeah, knowing I things are evil. That's, even, that's something I struggle with myself. Okay. It's, it's like, I think even us as Christians sometimes don't, you know, we're, we're not mourned by our sin as we should. That's right. Amen. Amen. So um, to, to your point, Noah, you know, he's saying that we cannot really seek after God in earnest, aspire to him in earnest until we have begun to be displeased with ourselves. And so uh, the Lord often works this um, as he prepares uh, one of his elect for salvation is he brings by his spirit a sense of the sinfulness of ourselves and we mourn over it 
Uh, and mm-hmm. here's also the disposition of natural man. For what man is not disposed to rest in himself? I think that is just a wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful statement, right? Um, I like the wording of the, um, I'm, I'm not, I don't have it exact, but the larger catechism when it's talking about preaching. Mm. Um, one of the purposes to drive men preaching, out of themselves. Yeah, is to drive in out of themselves yeah. to drive, draw them to Christ, mm. and that the driving them out of themselves has to come first. Yeah, so yeah. You know, you, you need to be brought low. You need to see your sinful mm. condition. And you know, Danny mentioned Joel Osteen, and in all seriousness, the that this is the issue we have with prosperity preachers. You know, Joel Osteen is a man. I don't know him or have any care about him personally. The issue is that he refuses to preach on sin, mm. on repentance, on hell, on all these things. And you will never get men to this point here if you only tell them prosperity, prosperity, your best life now. Mm. So why would men, they're not going to be driven out of themselves. Why would they flee to Christ? Right, exactly. Unless they, they want some other kind of benefits from Christ besides what he has come to do, right? Um, yeah, that's very, very good. Um, and so, yeah, we are disposed. And so this is our natural frame. We are disposed to rest in ourselves. Um, and we will rest so long as we uh, don't compare ourselves to God, as long as we don't know ourselves, right? Uh, to know ourselves is actually to be displeased with ourselves is the argument. If we really knew who we were, we would be very displeased with what we found if we truly compared ourselves to what we ought to be. And so every person, therefore, in coming to the knowledge of himself is not only urged to seek God, but is also led as by the hand uh, to find him. And that's what uh, Paul was doing in Acts 17, is he is bringing them almost by the hand, leading them to Jesus Christ um, in that way. So that was section one. Was there anything in section one that uh, I didn't mention? There's a lot I didn't mention that uh, you wanted to speak to or? talk about what's great is uh, i was talking to andrew about this uh we were talking earlier it's just chapter one is a very easy chapter to sort of get into so um all the chapters are so short yeah especially early on they're 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 pretty short chapters again it's not as intimidating as people try to make it out to be pastor ron yeah um that the last sentence um, where it says every person, therefore, on coming to the knowledge of himself is mm. not only urged to seek God, but is also led as by the hand to find him. Mm. Um, when it's speaking about urging and leading by the hand, can you just kind of explain that to see if we have the right idea of what it means? Yeah, it's not going to come naturally, right? It's not going to come just uh, a person is awoken in the middle of uh, wherever they are. Um, they might seek after God but they need to have instruction in how to get to the Lord. And it only comes, right? It, so it's not only urged, so this is also speaking to the ministry, right? And the Christian church, um, you're to urge them to seek God and also uh, lead them by the hand, with, by the Holy Spirit to find him. And, and that urging is that, uh, and leading, is that uh, something that we all do? Or is that only pertaining to pastors and ministers? Oh, oh, I see what you mean. It's our official ministry. Well, certainly the ministry is is paramount, but any any Christian can urge somebody, right? You open the scripture and say, you know, your conscience is bothering you. 
this is why. Uh, let me explain why. Let me show you, you know, Romans 3 or, or, or wherever you'd like to go in the scriptures and lead them, you know, uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Thank fact, that's a, that's a very kind of, uh, you, you almost imagine a kind of, and the, I don't have totally an understanding of what Calvin intended when he wrote that, right? But it's almost a very pastoral thing, right? Leading by the hand to find him. Um, you imagine the way we interact with our children, right? As, as you lead them in that way. So anyways, that was my thoughts. I don't know if anybody else had anything there. Good question though. I, I thought I understood him to be saying that learning about yourself is what is leading you to seek God. But mm -hmm. Yeah, on coming to the knowledge of himself, but he needs to sort of like the, the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Uh, somebody needs to help lead them to the Lord as well. And so, um, you know, if, if you have somebody who is troubled in their conscience, right, they're not going to just sort of the knowledge of God doesn't just get zapped into their mind. Uh, the knowledge of the true God doesn't just kind of come there. Like in Acts 17, I declare him to you, right? Somebody, or you pick up, or they have a Bible, right? Like Augustine or, or Luther, and they're led by the word of God to him, but they need that. He'll get there eventually, but special revelation is the is the means that the lord will use to lead you which is what the confession opens with saying you know this year mm -hmm. like calvin the the light of nature is sufficient for men to be um without excuse yeah that's right but we re we acknowledge that it is not sufficient for uh revelation to saving knowledge of, of yeah very good so which is why you see the unknown God. Mm. It's why you see a false religions abound in our day. Yeah. You know, it's not that there's just Christianity and there's just atheism. Uh, there's all these other false religions because men see there without excuse, mm -hmm. and now they're blindly, yeah, blindly seeking after God. Seeking. Very superstitious, as uh, Paul put it in Acts 17. So. All right. So section two is summarized sort of as uh, effects of the knowledge of God. Um, and so now he comes to, I think Danny had mentioned it, as you sort of wrestle through the knowledge of self and the knowledge of God, Calvin then starts to land on, we need to know God first in order to really understand ourselves. On the other hand, it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge. So you can know something maybe of your standing, uh, but you're not a true self-knowledge until he have previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. And so this is, um, this is what we kind of, as we transitioned out of the end of that chapter, I think that's helpful to see um, what being led to the Lord, you know, looks like you have to actually contemplate the face of God. And there's only one place you can do that, obviously, um, which is the Holy Scripture. And uh, the things that you will notice, Calvin, um, draws out. And I thought this was such a fantastic picture, vanity. Um, and that's sort of what our pride is like, is this lady kissing the mirror. Um, that's what we are naturally. We're very taken by ourselves, right? We're very self-satisfied. For such is our innate pride. We always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. Convinced, however, we are not if we look to ourselves only and not to the Lord also, he being the only standard by the application of which this conviction can be produced. 
So we'll never understand how rotten we are until we look at perfection, in other words. Um, and he's saying that's our pride, right? Our, we're prideful, naturally. We naturally think very highly of ourselves. Even the person who disparages themselves and is, uh, uh, you know, just always seems to be down on themselves. Even that's kind of a point of pride. They're thinking about themselves way too much, right? Uh, and not necessarily comparing themselves to who they ought to be comparing themselves, which is to the Lord. Um, they're not convinced. They're like how many people who are down on themselves are con are convinced they're vile. They're just kind of like, I'm not as good at doing something as somebody else maybe, or I'm always making a mess. But very few are in this world saying that they're vile sinners, uh, that they are fools and they're impure and unclean. Because we often just look at ourselves and compare ourselves. And then the second part is we are prone to hypocrisy. Uh, any, I, just the word pictures he paints, any empty semblance of righteousness is quite enough to satisfy us instead of righteousness itself. And that's a wonderful phrase. Anything that appears to be righteous, we are satisfied with, right? Well, I don't tell big lies. I just tell white lies. And so that's all right. You know, I've never murdered anyone. I've never cheated on my wife. You know, all these things, you know, yeah, I go to sites I shouldn't go to, but I've never really cheated on her, right? And so we are quite content with that kind of uh, semblance, and it's empty, uh, and that's enough to satisfy us instead of righteousness itself. No, I was going to say, Pastor, that reading that sounds like holding to the letter of the law and not the spirit. It does. It does have that. Um uh, you know, you've got the Pharisee here as well. This is a, a, a painting of the Pharisee and the publican or tax collector, uh, where, of course, he's extolling all of his many virtues. But even the one who doesn't quite know all the, the, the law of God, you know, at least as it is revealed, just has whatever's um, revealed through natural revelation. Uh, they're happy with whatever it is that whatever rules and terms, right, that they think that they are keeping. Um, they'll justify themselves in all kinds of ways, right? Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I did, um, I did steal from that guy, but he's got plenty of money, right? Like I charged him too much, but you know what? What's the big deal? He's a millionaire, right? You know, we're easily uh, able to satisfy our, our our own conscience. In other words, if that makes sense, Danny. No, yeah, it does. It totally does. Um, when, when you were reading that and talking about what you were saying earlier, um, it just it made me think about that. And mm. one quick question. Are you going to um, put these on the Slack again, these slides? Yeah, yeah, I can do that. Sweet. Thank you. Uh -huh. That way you can have your sweet Pharisee art if you'd like to hang that. <laughs> and Solomon. Yeah, and Solomon. There you go. Um, so. Yes, this is, uh, uh, this is exactly the point. And then there's that added problem of uh, legalism that Danny had mentioned, which is later on, of course, we'll realize that the law is spiritual, right? It touches the inward man and not just the outward actions. And uh, so we're quite happy with uh, um, any semblance of righteousness and say that's sufficient. Um, and this is the illustration that Andrew was talking about before. Uh, nay, the bodily sense may furnish a still stronger illustration of the extent to which we are deluded. Uh, see, he, um, this is also what Andrew was saying, that he's quite blunt in his words. Um, there is no self-esteem here that you're going to find in Calvin. Uh, we are deluded in estimating the powers of the mind, 
And this is the illustration. If at midday, we either look down to the ground or on the surrounding objects, which lie open to our view, we think ourselves endued with a very strong and piercing eyesight, like our sight is great. But when we look up to the sun and gaze at it unveiled, the sight which did excellently well for the earth is instantly so dazzled and confounded by the refulgence as to oblige us to confess that our acuteness in discerning terrestrial objects is mere dimness when applied to the sun. And we even know more about that phenomena than Calvin did in his day. There's the earth and there's the moon in comparison to the sun, right? And, and we think, you know, uh, even the earth is, is so vast, but when we, we don't consider who we are in the grand scale of things. And if that's the sun, what of the Lord, you know, who has made the sun? Um, even our faculties are unable. So this is what man, right? You, you think about the scientific endeavor, right? There's sort of this idea that we can comprehend pretty much everything if we just put our mind to it. Um, and that's not true. That's why sometimes people have problems with the Trinity. It's like we assume that we are going to be able to, in fullness, understand any concept that comes across our way. And uh, it's kind of funny, you know, some, some atheists I've met, uh, they might have had trouble with calculus, but they think that they're going to have, you know, uh, a grand time in being able to tell you why God cannot exist. It's um, our, we, we, again, are too prideful. We're too deluded into thinking that we need to be humble and see that we are not uh, what we think we are. And especially when we compare ourselves to um, the Lord. And so then he goes and uh, he says, thus too, it happens in estimating our spiritual quality. So he's making a, a connection there between that illustration and our spiritual state. So long as we do not look beyond the earth, we're quite pleased with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue. We address ourselves in the most flattering terms and seem only less than demigods. Uh, that was a wonderful phrase. But should we once begin to raise our thoughts to God and reflect what kind of being he is and how absolute the perfection of that righteousness and wisdom and virtue to which as a standard we are bound to be conformed, of what formerly delighted us by its false show of righteousness will become polluted with the greatest iniquity. What strangely Im imposed upon us under the name of wisdom will disgust by its extreme folly, and what presented the appearance of virtuous energy will be condemned as the most miserable impotence. Of course, there's Isaiah there, Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses, all of our good deeds are as filthy rags. This is what man is meant to come to the realization of when he actually understands who we are uh, compared to. Um, Okay, any further reflections on what was covered? Oh, what is fallen man next to God? Yeah. Um, so not only are we creatures, right, and our the gulf between us and the creator is so vast, but also we're fallen on top of that. And that's what makes it even worse. Um, I was going to get to this in just a bit, but we might as well talk about it now since you brought it up. You know, the sinless angels before God, right, are covering their face, right? His glory is so... He has a good he has, glory. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how much more than fallen man who's a sinner, right? Even by nature, right, we are less than the angels, but now we are fallen and so much less than that. And anything else on section two? 
Um, I was just thinking, could we say in that sun analogy picture, um, you know, that's one of the uses of the, the law. Mm. Well, could we, would that be a good analogy or, you know, that yeah, the sun so. there would be like yeah. the law of God, yeah. but that's what shows us, you know, again, like you were referencing our problem is we compare ourselves to other mm. sinful men, right? So mm. I'm always better than like Hitler. Yeah. Or That's right. Hitler. Yeah, usually Hitler's the bar. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, you know, we can always, if we're using those kind of standards, we're always going to be okay with ourselves. Yeah. Um, but then that perfect standard um, is is what it causes us to be undone. Amen. Amen. Um, yeah, and especially when we see sort of the depths to which the law reaches, right? Sometimes we just have a surface reading, um, but then you, like the apostle, when we realize who we are, oh, wretched man that I am, right? And uh, we really do see how far we, right, Romans 3, right? That we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Yeah, um, yeah so Absolutely. And that's just in terms of sin, not even in the cre uh, creator-creature distinction. Like the gulf is so vast in so many dimensions, right? I think this is one thing that's, oh, I'm sorry. It uh, was a Danny. Well, I was just going to say really quick, and you mentioning the vast um, reading through um, John Owen's, uh, um, uh, the dealing with indwelling. Yes, thank you. It's a book that Warren gave me. Thank you, Warren. And in there, um, he uh, only talks about the vastness um, uh, between us and, and God and the gulf that we need to think about and meditate on um, when we're dealing with sin, you know, within our, ourselves, that we need to think about that vastness and how far we are from God. So I like I like what you bring in that sun analogy and all that into it. Yeah, yeah. Um. Absolutely. That's something we don't dwell on very much. And that's, again, even as Christians, even those of us, I trust most, if not all of us on the call or, or here are born again, we still don't think about that as much as we should, right? You know, I, we're going to get to that because this is going to be the illustrations and he's going to use some of the holy men of old, right? Isaiah is a prophet of God, right? Or Job, you know, they themselves, believers, didn't think on the vast gulf between themselves and God until God confronts them. And then you really see that gulf between even um, the righteous and made righteous in Christ and God himself. And so he speaks of, and he uses illustrations out of the scripture of holy men who are struck with the dread of God. Hence that dread and amazement with uh, which as scripture uniformly relates, holy men were struck and overwhelmed whenever they beheld the presence of God, right? Uh, even our boys and girls know, you know, you go through the Old Testament. Every time a man meets God, you know, he thinks he's about to die. When we see those who previously stood firm and secure, so quaking with terror, right? And that's what we see with these saints, right? Whether it's Isaiah or whoever, that the fear of death takes hold of them. Nay, they are in a manner swallowed up and annihilated. The inference to be drawn is that men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. And that majesty is holiness is in, like we talked about in several dimensions. Um, so frequent examples of this consternation occur both in the book of Judges and the prophetical writings. 
so much so that it was a common expression among the people of God. We shall die, for we have seen the Lord. Hence the book of Job, also in humbling men under a conviction of their folly, feebleness, and pollution, always derives its chief argument from descriptions of the divine wisdom, virtue, and purity. Um, here's, a, here's a question. How was Job described at the beginning of Job? Yes, yeah, he's the most righteous man, right, on, on the earth. Um, so this is this is the man who is the most righteous man on the earth, um, and you know he he obviously goes through his difficulties uh, later in the book. How is it though that Job is truly humbled? It's not even his disease. It's not him being having his children taken away. How is Job humbled in the book? Where were you when I did blank? Okay. And what, what works of God does he actually, does God bring out when he confronts him in the whirlwind? Uh, creation. Creation, right? So isn't that interesting that he uses the creation itself? And you think about where Calvin is beginning here is he's saying, are you the creator? Did you make these things that are mightier than you, right? Where were you when I made all these things? And so it is even, I think that's helpful to see why Calvin begins here, because God himself confronts Job with his works as creator and his role as creator, right? Oh, you think Leviathan right. is intimidating to you? I made, I made you know, yeah. I caused them to play in the, yeah. the seas. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Um, let me get my mouse cursor again. So, and then he says, nor without cause, for we see Abraham the readier to acknowledge himself, but dust and ashes, the nearer he approaches to behold the glory of the Lord. And Elijah, unable to wait with unveiled face for his approach, so dreadful is the sight. And what can man do, man who is but rottenness and a worm, when even the cherubim themselves must veil their faces in very terror, right? And so this is uh, what we were talking about before. Uh, it's not only that we are uh, less than God in, in, in our being, but we are like that, that photo there. And that was the least grotesque thing I could, I could probably pull up when it came to rottenness and worms in a search bar. Um, there's some pretty vile things when you look at, uh, and I mean, just in terms of like gross naturally uh, of rotten stuff and worms, but that's what we are, right? This is, this is, this is where our self-esteem must be, is that this is what we are. We're rottenness and worms. Um, fallen man is not even this wholesome in God's eyes, right? That's, if, if any man looked into our heart, right? Uh, I often speak to people and I go out evangelizing this way. Like, what would, it, what would happen if I could plug your heart into a projector and, and put it out for the world to see right now? You'd be so embarrassed by what's in there, right? And what about God? who sees into the heart and evaluates a man by his heart. And so the question here, and we've already answered it essentially, but is God's holiness limited to the truth that he is sinless? Like, is it, sometimes we just think of his holiness and we think, okay, it just means that he is uh, sinless and righteous and, and pure morally. But is, is, is that the limit of what the Bible means by God is holy? Utterly set apart. Mm. Like, like you already said, um, so many in every facet of being. Yeah. And that God is one facet of our being, and He's set apart from 
balance, but all, all the other. Yeah, yeah. Like in his uh, simplicity, divine simplicity, and his separateness from the creation, right? He's not material in any way. Uh, his power is infinite. Uh, he's eternal. He has never had a beginning, never had, never will have an end. And so in every possible dimension, it seems, you know, God is so other uh, from us that uh, uh, even if we weren't fallen, right, uh, coming into his presence, like the, the cherubim, you know, we would have to shield ourselves. And uh, he says, to this undoubtedly the prophet Isaiah refers when he says in Isaiah 24, 23, the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign. Uh, when he shall exhibit his refulgence and give a nearer view of it, the brightest objects will in comparison be covered with darkness. And uh, so even the heavenly bodies are insignificant. That's what's actually covered by the Zoom thing, is that even the heavenly bodies will be seen as nothing, right? It, you know, one of the things that we've lost today because of light pollution is to look into the heavens and just see the majesty of what God has created. But all of those things are going to be nothing compared to the revelation of God when the Lord of hosts reveals himself, right? Uh, everything will seem, I mean, you put a man, you know, just a, a hundred miles from the sun and he'll be in terror. Imagine what he would be like uh, in the face of God. And so um, that's what man has to come to the knowledge of. And interestingly, uh, we will have no sun or, or moon or anything. Yeah. He himself will be the light. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so where this is going next, I think we made good time. It's about an hour, uh, through the knowledge of God and the knowledge, though the knowledge of God and uh, knowledge of ourselves are bound together by a mutual tie. So that's how we began. This is what Danny had alluded to earlier. Due arrangement requires that we treat of the former, meaning the knowledge of God in the first place, and then descend to the latter, which is the knowledge of ourselves. And that's what he did is he essentially laid out the case for how he's arranging the rest of the material, right? We're going to begin with the knowledge of God. We're going to consider ourselves in view of him. And here's the problem. And I wanted to deal with it just a bit um, tonight, even though Calvin will deal with it quite well, but it'll be many, many weeks. Uh, you know, in Job, going back to Job eleven seven, right? The question is, canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the almighty into perfection, right? So even our searching of God is in some ways going to be vain unless there's a solution to this problem. And I thought it was so, so wonderful when you read 2 Corinthians 4, 6, right? For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. So what's that, his role as what? You think of Job and confronting Job, right? God commanded the light to shine out of darkness. That's God as creator, right? Which is where we've begun. Hath shined in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And just to see that the creator God, right, who is so other, has shined in our hearts by his Holy Spirit to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of the person of Jesus Christ. And, um, and I, I think it's so wonderful how he begins, Paul begins here with God, the creator. Um, and what did, uh, what did Jesus say? Um, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, right? And so this is helpful for us. Who is the measuring stick then that we compare ourselves to when we, when we consider what we ought to be as, as men? 
and women, obviously. Christ himself, Christ himself right? According right. in Prague. An interesting question. That's weird. It says recording in progress. Um, uh, anyhow, so yeah, that, that's just a wonderful way, I think, to tie together our redemption into this. And Calvin himself, and I've been, since we've been doing a study on the Institutes, whenever I find a text like that, I just want to see what Calvin has to say. Here we have a remarkable passage from which we learn that God is not to be sought out, Job 11, 7, in his unsearchable height, for he dwells in light that is inaccessible, 1 Timothy 6, 16, but is to be known by us insofar as he manifests himself in Christ. Hence, whatever men desire to know respecting God apart from Christ is evanescent or fading, for they wander out of the way. True indeed, God in Christ appears in the first instance to be mean, lowly, but he appears at length to be glorious in the view of those who hold on so as to come from the cross to the resurrection. Again, we see that in the word person, there is a reference made to us because it is more advantageous for us to behold God as he appears in his only begotten son than to search out his secret essence. That's so wonderful. You know, it's speaking to Jesus as the mediator between God and man, that we come to God through him and that it is far more advantageous for us to behold God as he appears in the sun than to search out his divinity, which, you know, essentially we could not have a fruition of, um, but we can uh, because uh, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so without Christ, there would be absolutely no way to have fruition uh, of God. All right. So then with that, next time, uh, read chapter two in book one, uh, which is what it is to know God, uh, the tendency of this knowledge. Lord willing, our next meeting will be on February 7th. Anything else for this first chapter? Yeah, I got a question, um, yeah. but it's maybe more of a little bit of contention. Uh, what would you say is Calvin's view of apologetics? Is he more classical or is he more like, uh, what's the guy's name? Like Van Til? Van Til. Yeah. Or, or is he in between? Uh, I, don't, I don't know that, uh, you know, the, the presuppositional school is fairly, fairly cert, uh, recent. Um, I, I would say that Calvin, like most men of that time, would have been classical. Uh, you know, you can even see where he starts with God the Creator. Um, and uh, uh, so that would be my, my guess. I'm not well, well enough versed to know all of his apologetics, but men of that era tended to be classical in nature. That, that's what I would have thought because of the way he starts with um, the, he links uh, man's knowledge of ourselves with the knowledge of God and how tricky it is. Yeah. Um, but in the end, in the end, you have to, um, you need scripture to guide you. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, all you can get as far as is knowing that you are condemned and uh, that there is a creator God. But um, I think Andrew had mentioned as well that without the scriptures, you can't be led to that God for salvation. Good question, though. All right. Well, if there's nothing else, why don't I pray and uh, we can close our time. Our Father in heaven. What a privilege, uh, even as we heard on the Lord's Day, that we have heard the gospel and that we know Christ, for not all men do, and not all men have received this divine word from heaven. 
And we thank you, Lord, for revealing into our hearts the wretches that we are apart from Christ, uh, that we are uh, insignificant, rotten worms. Uh, our soul has no health in itself. Uh, we are deluded in so many ways. We are so happy with ourselves, and yet we are ashamed. Our consciences testify that we ought to be ashamed of what we are. And so we thank you, Lord, that you have revealed these things to us in the face of Jesus Christ by the Holy Ghost working through the word of God. We pray you'd bless all of us tonight, that we would ponder you more, that we would spend less time looking down to the things of the earth, that we would look up to heaven and ponder our God, that we would open the scripture and see your magnificence, your glory, your majesty, and say, who are we, O God, that you take note of us? And that we would give glory to God that uh, we who are so insignificant have been given a savior from the heavens who has come down to save his people. Bless us now as we uh, depart this time and may you use this time that we may have a greater appreciation of our God. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. You're welcome. Yeah, thank, thank you, Pastor. You're welcome. Have a good night, everyone. Good night, good night. guys. <laughs> thank you. cursor back here it is i can never i'll have to have somebody open the meeting chat next time because people are posting things and i